We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. And so throughout the 1970s and 80s, I think in many ways it's the golden years of this type of marketing strategy where you see this larger production, you know, beautifully produced uh, commercials that are featuring um, vignettes of African-American life. And this becomes so important because I think from our perspective in 2021, it's hard to remember a time where it was very unusual to see African-Americans on television, to see them as leads in advertisements, you know, to see them represented in positive ways. That was historian Marcia Chatelaine talking about fast food giant McDonald's and its impact on Black communities and on our culture at large. Since the 1960s, McDonald's history has been interwoven with the lives of Black Americans, sometimes in surprising ways. Dr. Chatelaine tells that story in her book franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America which won a 2021 Pulitzer Prize. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Marcia Chatelaine's fascinating book reveals the complex relationship between McDonald's and the crusade for civil rights. It tells how McDonald's became a fixture in black neighborhoods with both pluses and minuses. Dr. Chatelaine is professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University. Reviewers have used words like stunning and an eye-opener to describe her book franchise. Hear this complex untold story and learn why Dr. Marcia Chatelaine is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. 
I'm here today with Dr. Marcia Chatlin, professor, scholar of African-American life and culture, and Pulitzer Prize-winning author. It's a delight to have you with us, Dr. Chatlin. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on getting the Pulitzer this year for history. This is fantastic, obviously. Tremendous achievement. The book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, is about how McDonald's is intertwined with the lives of Black Americans and the civil rights movement. Such an interesting topic, and we're delighted you'll be able to talk to us about it today. You sum up the role of McDonald's in Black American lives how? Well, what I think about McDonald's in relationship to African Americans is that it its presence in Black communities runs a parallel storyline to the story of civil rights and the pivot toward Black business and Black business ownership after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968. So the book really explores how this market is developed and targeted after King's assassination, because after his death, there was a real question as to what direction civil rights would take. And so I look at the ways that the market Place and consumer culture start to assert themselves as potential vehicles for racial justice. Now, they're both pros and cons to McDonald's in this regard. What are the positives and then what are the negatives? Well, I think that the story is about how complicated it is to try to deliver on the demands of everyday people. And so one of the things that I found in my research is that When McDonald's opened the opportunity for franchising its restaurants to African-Americans, the individuals who led this effort were able to expand their own business experiences. They were able to employ African-Americans in restaurants and help them uh, ascend the ladder of management. There were opportunities for African-American suppliers, as well as advertisers. So there were some real growth opportunities in business. But all of this came, I think, at a very high price in terms of low-wage work that we know is still an issue in the fast food industry. The feminization of poverty through low-wage work is also an issue that continues, as well as some of the real health consequences of fast food saturation in communities of color that had um, fewer routes of access to quality healthcare. And so that mixed bag, I think, in many ways is reflective of the ways that social policy tried to address the unfinished business of civil rights in the late 1960s. So interesting to think about it that way. Now, it's a topic that is quite uh, fascinating in many, many ways, something a lot of people haven't thought about clearly. How did you come to realize it was worthy of being the subject of historical research? Well, I grew up with uh, McDonald's as a child of the 1980s. Um, I often joke that I'm a generation of young people whose parents let them eat McDonald's and it wasn't considered a bad thing or a big deal. But as I advanced in my preparation to become a historian, one of the things that I often thought about as someone who grew up in Chicago, who noticed the presence of African-American franchise owners in Black community activities that were separate from actually consuming and purchasing food. So African-American franchise owners often sponsored back-to-school parades. They Mm -hmm. were big supporters of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. There are all of these ways that they had a presence 
that was really separate from McDonald's itself. And I was always really fascinated by that. My first book is about girls and young women during Chicago's Great Migration. And the first time I actually read about the Great Migration, it was because the McDonald's operators in my area had sponsored an African-American history quiz bowl team. And so thinking about the fact that this group of business people were so responsible for a community's cultural and social life always kind of stayed in the back of my mind as I thought about these complex relationships between individuals and corporations. Yeah, that is really fascinating to think about uh, McDonald's as a a benevolent advertiser, if you will, a sponsor of good causes, separate perhaps from the way most would think about McDonald's and and you're putting them together uh, really makes for an interesting story. What about the food? Let's talk about it for a moment. How do you address the health concerns that you raised earlier that come up whenever one frankly talks about McDonald's menu, fairly or unfairly? Well, one of the things that I wanted to do was to contribute um, a perspective on the ways that we talk about health and people's food choices. It's not unusual for you to turn on the television and to see the B-roll um, on stories about obesity and you know healthcare disparities. And often it's this kind of nameless, faceless, uh, disembodied figure who's supposed to represent a health crisis of obesity and all of these types of things. And we've had a lot of conversations about children and fast food marketing. But one of the things that I think is often missing from these conversations, whether they're driven by public health, um, medicine, or people who have a critique of fast food, is that we fail to recognize the history that brought fast food into communities of color. And we also fail to recognize often the fact that these bonds between fast food and communities sometimes is about something bigger than the food itself. Mm -hmm. So we can say that, you know, the McDonald's menu isn't the most interesting cuisine and it is not, um, you know, the most complex of foods. And we also have to recognize that in certain communities, the McDonald's is the meeting place. It's the senior center. It's the um, best playground in the community. It's the sponsor of youth sports. It's a presence in the schools. And so how do we understand people's food choices as connected to these other relationships that vulnerable communities are forced to have with corporations because of a lack of choices. Mm. One of the things that I really try to emphasize in my book is that we have to understand the constrained choices that create the conditions that we are concerned about today. And I think fast food in Black America is an excellent example of that. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. 
Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Now, we talked about McDonald's as a sponsor and aligning itself with good causes in the communities where it serves the community as a franchise. But how has it marketed specifically to the Black community in terms of what it offers? So after 1968, when the first African-American franchise owner was able to acquire a McDonald's in Chicago, The network of Black franchise owners expanded throughout the country. And what they discovered was that although they were donating money, rather, they were contributing money to the overall advertising fund that uh, fueled McDonald's various campaigns, there were no campaigns that were targeted towards their consumers in African American communities. So they advocated for the hiring of a Black advertising firm called Burrell Communications to do advertisements that spoke to the particular concerns and the experiences of African-Americans. And in the late 60s and early 1970s, we start to see a changing landscape in marketing and advertising where there more, um, there's more diversity in the choice of models. There's the use of non-white celebrities to promote products. And McDonald's was really at the forefront of that shift. And so throughout the 1970s and 80s, I think in many ways, it's the golden years of this type of marketing strategy where you see this larger production, you know, beautifully produced uh, commercials that are featuring um, vignettes of African-American life. And this becomes so important because I think from our perspective in 2021, it's hard to remember a time where it was very unusual to see African-Americans on television, to see them as leads in advertisements, you know, to see them represented in positive ways. And the Burrell Communications team was really committed on capturing African-Americans in ways that were dignified and that could also express that they too were able to participate in the consumer citizenship of the period. Real positive value in that respect too. So how has McDonald's responded to the more recent calls we've been talking about the mesh with the civil rights movement? What's happened more recently with Black Lives Matter, the social justice cause, and everything that's associated with it? Has the company, have the um, various McDonald's been responsive? 
So this has been a very complicated story the past few years. So, you know, in my book, I'm incredibly critical of the conditions that made McDonald's so important in African-American life, particularly the ways that the failed possibilities of the civil rights movement weren't realized in the late 1960s. And the shift towards business left people um, both enriched on one hand, but also still starving for so much more. And more recently, this relationship between McDonald's and its African-American franchise owners has become very complicated. There have been accusations of racial discrimination, lawsuits filed saying that McDonald's has created um, a second-class citizenry among their Black franchise owners. And these are concerns that date all the way back until, you know, 1969, what my book talks about. But I think more importantly, um, you know, this past year with the George Floyd summer and the rearticulation of Black Lives Matter as a social movement, McDonald's has tried to stand in solidarity. Um, you know, they produced a, a little video that they put out on Twitter saying that Black Lives Matter. But I think that these gestures really fall flat when you think about the fact that McDonald's as an employer, as an incredible market leader, has the potential to really say that Black Lives Matter in reforming its pay structure in providing paid sick leave for all of its workers, not just in its company-owned stores, and really holding itself up as a model of how you can really treat um, working people with dignity. And I think that they've failed in many ways. And so on one hand, I think they've aligned with a lot of the corporate rhetoric saying that, you know, we support social justice and we'll donate to organizations. But I think that their greatest power is really their power as an employer to make the quality of work different for so many people. Have you uh, consulted with or heard from company executives since you wrote the book or in the process of writing the book? You know, this is a funny question. Um, so McDonald's um, specifically um, has not celebrated my book. I think they feel like I'm unfair um, in my uh, portrayal of some of their missteps. Although um, I think that my book is not only accurate, but I think it's bigger than McDonald's. It's about these questions of what do we do for calls for racial justice? Do we take them seriously? and incorporate them into the public good and use our resources to address them? Or do we look to the private sector to come up with these solutions that can never fully get to the heart of what people need? And so um, the thing that's interesting is when I was on my book tour before COVID uh, shut everything down, I did meet a lot of African-Americans who used to work for McDonald's, who were franchise owners, And, you know, they really were grateful for the story that I was trying to tell about the complicated ways that while they may have enjoyed some individual success, the extent to which their individual restaurant or their restaurants as a whole could never really address the key animating issues that created a lot of the tensions and pushed a lot of the questions of the late 1960s. Because From the perspective of 1968, it may have seemed feasible that a Black-owned McDonald's, um, a series of Black-owned companies could actually address racial inequality. But it didn't take very long for people to realize the enormity of racial injustice and understanding that 
these are really, from my perspective, um, you know, questions of the public good. And I think that they really should be in the hands of our of our public leaders. It's it's really a policy book, uh, in as well as a historical account and a very interesting perspective on life and culture. Uh, you you bring so many threads together. You know, you talked about McDonald's as an employer, the kind of change that you'd like to see, and I'm sure it extends beyond McDonald's. What, if anything, makes you optimistic uh, in this regard, uh, that the McDonald's uh, and beyond could be much more contributive in terms of bettering people's lives, in terms of pay, et cetera? Well, you know, this is such a, this is such a, you know, tough moment to feel optimistic sometimes um, as a person with the politics that I have. But this is what I do know. I think that campaigns like the Fight for 15 that has been working on the issue of the minimum wage for years has entered the public consciousness. And so I think that while maybe a generation or two ago, um, you know, the issue of workers' wages may have seemed, you know, the issue of people in a particular industry. I think people across sectors are thinking, yeah, you know, people need to have a living wage. I think that um, the COVID-19 crisis has really raised a lot of people's confidence in their ability to unite within the context of their communities and help each other and create solutions in, um, in conversation with a lot of people. So we see the launching of mutual aid networks. We see the ways that with the recent national, uh, with the recent natural disasters in the South, as well as the East coast, people saying, okay, we are part of a community. How are we going to use the resources of this community to help each other? And I think that the more and more we see activity like that, uh, the stronger we feel as everyday people, as citizens in its most broad definition to come together for solutions that the period that I write about in the late 1960s, people are so devastated. They're so grief stricken. They've lost so much um, in the assassinations of King and then the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Um, and I think that I understand why people who had great aspirations for African-Americans securing the vote or fair housing said, well, maybe we should just open businesses. Maybe this is the path of least resistance. But I think today we have been so tested about the fragility of our democracy that people are really, I think, discovering incredible strength. And while it may not seem as apparent uh, because we are still in such a tough time as a nation and a world, I do believe that there is a greater compassion for workers. There's a greater understanding of how workers are really squeezed. I think that understanding the plight of essential workers during COVID has also made people more compassionate and thoughtful. And so I think that, you know, now what we're going to see is that a younger generation of people are going to run on campaigns, run on platforms to really push corporations to act responsibly, but to remind people that we ultimately have the power um, to govern and to care for each other. That's such a an important place for us uh, to to come uh, to the end of this conversation because it's filled with optimism and hope and a sense that we really can come together across our divisions and across our challenges uh, to begin to address these fundamental questions. 
thank you so much for this fascinating conversation, but even more importantly, for your extraordinary book and your work. Dr. Chatlin, uh, you've really made a contribution that uh, I know will not only have many of us going out to get your book, to read your book, but also to think about the profound issues that you raise in it. So thank you so much for being with us and for all that you do. Thank you so much. Amazing. What a fascinating perspective on American history. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, companies have the power to make positive change in the world. Early on, McDonald's saw that it could provide entrepreneurial opportunities for Black Americans and could influence the way we saw Black people in advertising. Second, Putting a focus on McDonald's provides a fresh opportunity to discuss the responsibility of big corporations to pay workers a living wage. Finally, Dr. Chatelain's book asks us to look at recent calls for racial and social justice. As she asks, do we take these calls seriously and incorporate them into the public sphere and use our resources to address them? Or do we look to the private sector to come up with these solutions that can never fully get to the heart of what people need? Tune in next week to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.